So tonight's talk is called Finding True Refuge. We began this evening by chanting uh, the refuges. And if some of us are new to Buddhist teachings, this may not be so meaningful. And so I'd like to speak about it uh, tonight in a way that hopefully just can remind some of us what this is about, uh, can help us to have it be a very alive part of our practice. The refuges are actually said to be the doorway or the gateway into the Buddha's teachings on the path to liberation. So, um, you know, we can't get inside a room without walking through the doorway. And so to have these refuges be something that is relevant, significant to us. And I think as I speak about them, whether or not you consider yourself to be a Buddhist, you will find meaning for yourself. You will find something that uh, can help you to begin to touch into this chant. Taking of the refuges can help to turn your mind in the direction of what can be a refuge in our lives. The word refuge itself implies safety, protection, uh, it's giving shelter to ourselves from fear, harm, danger. And we live in a world that is fraught with danger, that there uh, is an uncontrollability to life, it's a difficult time on this planet. Um, there's a lot in the outer world that we need safety from. And we also need safety from our own minds. These minds that at different times in our lives can be savage, ruthless. That we can suffer when we don't relate wisely to this mind when we let it run in habituated patterns that are based in greed, hatred, and delusion. If we don't have some form of refuge in our lives, it becomes quite unbearable. We're very vulnerable. that, you know, just in the changing flow of life, it can be painful, dissatisfying. And what we find that in our lives, that if we aren't aware of what we can really take refuge in, we take refuge in things that are unreliable, unworthy. We take refuge in our experiences. We take refuge in our jobs, careers. We take refuge in relationships. You know, oftentimes we'll take refuge in food, pizza, beer. Uh, take refuge in movies. You know, we, sitting here, many times we'll take refuge in fantasies in our minds. You know, and all of this is impermanent. All of it is unreliable, subject to change. And so what happens is that we feel 
really dissatisfied, disgruntled. We can find ourselves in, you know, a strong state of despair when something we've taken refuge in, suddenly we learn the truth of impermanence in relationship to that experience, event, person. And so, if we continue to do this, we will continue to live in a dissatisfied way. We will be, continue to be disappointed. Life will, at times, feel unbearable. But if we start to look closely at our experience, we will come to see that there is dissatisfaction in this, that these experiences are not worthy of being a refuge. The Buddha learned as he sat under the Bodhi tree that famous evening over 2,500 years ago, that even though there is this truth of impermanence that is a fact of life that leaves us feeling very vulnerable, exposed, that in the external world there is nothing that is reliable, he learned that there still is true refuge to be found. That there is something that can be relied upon. In order to find this, we have to turn the direction of our attention around from seeking this sense of refuge in the outer world into finding true refuge in the inner world that can be expressed in the outer world. We need to look within ourselves to find a happiness that is not based upon conditions. From that evening where the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree and saw within his own mind what leads to liberation, what leads to a realization that unbinds the heart. He looked within and saw that which was reliable and then proceeded to teach the way that we could all come to understand this for ourselves. 
he talked about there being three places that are worthy of refuge. This being the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Places isn't quite, quite the right word, I see as I say it. It's not as like there's a destination that we can hang on to. But there is ways we can turn our mind, direction we can turn our mind in that will help us to discover for ourselves that which is reliable. Before I, wanna, before I go on, I want to pause here for a moment because I know for some of us we may feel like uh, an aspiration to be liberated, awakened, enlightened seems too lofty that we may have come to practice just with a sense of wanting a bit more space in our minds, wanting a bit more peace, happiness, wanting to have a little bit of freedom from the continual bombardment we have of life's events, circumstances, and thoughts within our own minds. We want to find some sense of peace with you know, just to some degree with the merry-go-round of life. But yet, this little aspiration that we may have in our own experience is very much like a homing instinct. It's um, the desire to be happy, even though we may not in our own minds have the sense that it's possible to be fully free awakened, liberated. And yet, this same movement of heart, this aspiration to be wise, embody wisdom, to be a bit kinder, to have a bit of peace, this same aspiration, when we pay attention to it, can grow and develop into the aspiration that can take us to full Buddhahood. This really happens when we start to pay attention in our practice. That we may come here just with the sense of wanting to be a bit more happy, peaceful. And so we work with mindfulness. We work with being present to our experience. And we come to see for ourselves the difference between when we are caught in the flames of greed, hatred, and delusion, and when we can be with our experience in a very simple way, just with this power of mindfulness. We start to see that there really is no choice. That to continue to Uh, Fuel, greed, hatred, and delusion leads to a lot of pain, a lot of suffering. And we start to see how it isn't necessary. We don't need to do this. We start to understand how we get caught. And we cease to do this. And as within ourselves, the aspiration to really just step out of this whirlwind of suffering, as we gain more confidence, clarity, understanding, it comes quite naturally that we wish to help others to do this. 
and that we really want to awaken because that is the way that we can step out of suffering. So we find that a refuge begins to come through just knowing the power of awareness. That at any moment, we can turn our minds to this. And it has such a cooling effect. You're sitting there, and the mind gets caught up in some story of your life. It could be something that's happened, or something that you have fear of happening, some projection into the future. And you find you get caught up in the story of it. Fear, anxiety mounts as you keep thinking about it. And then suddenly you realize you can be mindful. And so it's the knowing that this is just a thought. Knowing the mind state that arose in relationship to that thought. Fear, anxiety. It's very different when we know that mind state rather than when we're simply habitually feeding it we start to feel the effect right there, the coolness, the refuge. So finding true refuge is inclining the mind towards that which is true, reliable, trustworthy. And in doing so, we discover what the full capacity is of being a human being. We find that we call forth from within us all of the wholesome qualities that are present. We give voice, in a way, to our aspirations, our intention. So the Buddha talked about refuge by way of taking refuge in the Buddha. There are different meanings to how we can hold this. And, you know, first, many of us will be inspired by the fact that a man lived over 2,500 years ago. He was a human being, you know, not a, a demigod, not a celestial being. He was a human being. And he inquired deeply into suffering. He looked into his own mind, heart. He looked into the experience of being a human being to see how one could relate wisely to this, how one would not be living constricted by fear, desire, anger, aversion. He looked to how one can unbind the heart, how one can call forth the qualities of loving-kindness, compassion, wisdom, equanimity. He looked and realized within himself the possibility of doing this. For me, it's always been really important to remember he was a human being. Because he did this, I can do it. We can all do it. 
we all have the same capacity. We can also look at taking refuge in the Buddha as taking refuge in the qualities that the awakened mind embodies. These qualities of loving-kindness, wisdom, compassion. When we take refuge in the Buddha, it's taking refuge in that which is awake, that which is wise, that which is noble. It helps us to set our intention to awaken. I found it really helpful when in moments of suffering, moments where there's a lot of darkness, where um, it's hard to remember that this seed of potential the seed of awakening, the seed of Buddha nature is within me. It may be that I can't realize it in that moment, but I can still stay aligned with the potential of this seed. That I don't have to fall into the darkness and define myself by the experiences I'm having. That to know that to stay as steady as I can, to just keep turning up and do the, doing the best that I can, this holds within it the seed of awakening. When we think of taking refuge in the Buddha, it can be a heartfelt way of invoking or inviting the qualities of a Buddha. Really, it brings closer that potential within us. This will help us to persevere in these times that are difficult. It will help us to have the courage to break the trance of the habituated mind, the mind that just keeps repeating um, these habits that cause pain, cause suffering. So we can take refuge in the historical Buddha. We can take refuge in the qualities that the awakened mind embodies. And we can just take refuge in the seed of Buddha nature that is within each of us. Sometimes even in relating with other people, this is very helpful to know that if we're struggling, having difficulty with some person, that we find their 
uh, behavior irritating, obnoxious, that even though they're acting in this way, that there can be a way in which we can honor and respect them for the Buddha nature that is inherent within them. It can help to keep us from lashing out, causing harm, pain. So taking refuge in the Buddha and then taking refuge in the Dhamma. The Dharma, too, has different meanings. Sometimes we hear Dharma spoken as as taking refuge in the truth. Sometimes taking refuge in the teachings of the Buddha. Or taking refuge in the lawfulness of life. Taking refuge in the truth. This is... um, taking refuge in the way things are rather than habituating habits of deception, pretense, rather than perpetuating the fluff of life, but really taking refuge in the truth of the way things are. We take refuge in the lawfulness of life, that things are unfolding according to natural laws, And this means that our life is not a mistake. You know, it's unfolding due to these natural laws. One of these natural laws is the law of karma. There's a world of cause and effect. And things are unfolding in relation to this. When we can rest in this lawful unfolding, it helps us to surrender and to trust in this process. For myself, you know, when I see what sometimes get termed as karmic knots, deeply habituated tendencies that keep repeating themselves over and over again, when I think about the reflect on the law of karma, it helps me to see that this is a configuration that I can learn from. This is where I need to keep my eyes open to inquire, to investigate. Understanding the the Dhamma as the lawfulness of life, this unfolding, it helps us to see that we are not separate from the Dhamma. This body-mind experience is a part of the Dhamma, which means we don't need some other experience in order to awaken. We can look within this unfolding to arrive at understanding and realization. If we surrender to the way things are, implicit in this is the letting go of views and opinions, letting go of our ideas about how things should be, and instead aligning ourselves with truth. <laughs> 
when we're aligned with truth, suffering diminishes. We can understand taking refuge in the Dharma as taking refuge in the teachings and putting the teachings into practice. So it can be seen as the path of practice, which is a combination between wisdom and skillful means. Wisdom, the capacity to see clearly, being able to know things just as they are, And this happens without delay. It isn't that we need to study endless books. It happens when we come close to our experience and don't distort experience. This needs support of skillful means because we have such habits of delusion, getting lost, confused, afraid, identified, And so we need to give support to the mind in order to see clearly. And this is why we practice. And we learn to take refuge in our practice. This becomes very apparent as we practice. That if we have a deep practice, if we really let practice come to the center of our lives, when we hit trouble, when we hit difficulty, we can turn to our practice. It may be that we go to a doctor and we get diagnosed with some horrible disease. It's not going to be the refuge that takes the disease away, but it's going to give us a way of being with whatever unfolds whether it is uh, strong emotions that arise, whether you know, fear arises, it will help to give us a means to open to that fear, to be with that fear without exacerbating it. It will help to give us the tools to be with strong pain, pain that seems relentless. It will help us to be able to find refuge when we're faced with these challenges. And it's really the only refuge that we can find when we're dying. Being able to turn our minds in a way that we don't get caught up in this fear, anxiety, worry, stress. In our practice here, we train to be with whatever arises, whatever unfolds in our experience. And then we can take this into life to be with life in this same way, to not shy away from the difficulties, 
but to be able to stay present, to bear witness. So taking refuge in the Dhamma, taking refuge in the truth, the lawfulness of life, taking refuge in the path to liberation, the path to liberation being made up of wisdom and skillful means. It's a way of actualizing awakening, enlightenment. The third form of refuge, taking refuge in the Sangha. And again, there's different meanings to Sangha. There's the Arya Sangha, the noble Sangha, which is made up of all beings whom have awakened. All beings who have lifted the veils of delusion in their mind, seen into a purity of heart and mind. Beings that live with a heart unbound by fear, contraction. Again, it's valuable to know that there's other beings who have walked this path and were able to awaken, were able to move out of ignorance. I was practicing one time in Burma and going through a very difficult period and you know, feeling somewhat discouraged. And then as I was sitting there in this discouraged state, I looked up and there was a picture on the wall. It was a painting of the Buddha walking along with all these monks following along behind him and they were on alms round. And just in that moment of looking up at this picture, I remembered that there were many people who had sat with the same kind of pain, grief, despair that I was experiencing. And probably many of them in life situations that were worse, much worse than what I was facing. And they still were able to awaken it helped to give me courage in that moment to know that I wasn't alone, that others had managed. I'd like to share an enlightenment poem from a woman uh, who was a disciple of the Buddha, lived in the time of the Buddha. Her name was Vasati. And she was born, uh, and as she grew up, she became happily married. And then she had bore a son, And when her son died, she went mad and ran away from home. And at this time, there was no places that people like this could go to for help. And so she ran and roamed like a wild animal. And so this is her poem of awakening. Grief-stricken for my son, mad-minded, out of my senses, I was naked with wild hair, and I wandered anywhere. 
I lived on trash heaps in a graveyard and by the highways, three years wandering, starved and thirsty. Then in the city of Mithila, I saw the one who tames what is untamed and goes his way in happiness, enlightened, unafraid. I came to my senses, paid homage and sat down. Out of compassion, Gautama, the Buddha, taught me the way. When I heard his words, I set out into homelessness. By putting his teachings into practice, I realized great joy. My grief is cut out, finished, ended, for I have understood the ground from which all grief comes. So the Arya Sangha, the noble ones, all those whom have walked this path and awakened, again, people like you and me. Then there is the ordained Sangha. This is all of the monks and the nuns whom have carried forth these teachings and put these teachings into practice for over 2,500 years. Not all fully enlightened, but an essential part of these teachings coming to us today. They've really helped to preserve these teachings. On one of my visits to Burma, I temporarily ordained as a nun. It was something that I found very inspiring to do. It was one of those um, things in life. It, to me, it was very much, uh, in some ways, similar to when I got married. You know, it seemed like just something I needed to do. Uh, I, for practical reasons in my life, I needed to get married. And then when I did it, I actually felt the kind of the strength, the commitment. Um, it w- was a very powerful ritual. And it was similar when I ordained as a nun, only probably you know, to a greater extent, that it was a way in which I felt my inner and outer worlds coming into harmony, coming into alignment. It was this way of setting my intention. And at the time, I had such a strong sense of lineage, how these teachings have been handed down from practitioner to practitioner, you know, right from present day going back to the time of the Buddha. And it's really this lineage that can keep these teachings pure, that keeps these teachings relevant to our lives that keeps these teachings reliable. I don't know, it's felt very important in my own life. And it, you know, it could be different for each of us. But for me to walk a path that is tried and true, that, you know, is just not 
somebody who's had some experience and they think, oh, wow, look at this, I'll share this with everybody. And yeah, it's some, you know, there's some goodness in it. But this is really a path that can take us to full liberation. And that many have done it. To me, that makes it trustworthy and important to honor the lineage from which it comes. Sangha can also be related to as the community of people who come together to hear the teachings and to put those teachings into practice. The Sangha is a way that we get support on the journey. It's made up of our spiritual friends. For those of you who were here last week, you know I spoke about spiritual friendship and the importance of it. The importance of having people in our lives who are wise, who are helpful. Of having peers in our lives that have similar aspirations. Because it in one sense, we'll give reminders to ourselves uh, about the potential, about staying on the path. Um, It will give us support as we sit. We know this just from sitting here in the hall, how being around others can um, give us support when you're sitting here, you're starting to feel really restless, discouraged and everyone else around you is sitting quietly. You know, it helps give support. You're out walking and it's difficult and then you just see someone walking and they look peaceful. Who knows what's happening inside? But it just helps to remind us, gives us strength, confidence. These spiritual friends help remind us of the nobility of our intentions. We find that, you know, living as a community, that there's people within it who might irritate us, are, are difficult to be around. And so if we think of taking refuge in individuals, it isn't reliable. But we can take refuge in the nobility of our intentions. I have found for myself that with this there comes a sense of responsibility. That because this is a living teaching, a teaching that gets passed on from person to person, that within that, if in the present moment there are not people who honor and awaken to these teachings, the teachings will become lost. If we in our lives have experienced teachers who've died, this is often a time where we get a sense of this responsibility, where suddenly, you know, those that we have turned to for inspiration, help, are gone, no longer in the physical body, 
then it calls on us to embody these teachings, to embody truth, to embody wisdom, so that future generations can have the benefit of these teachings. One of my teachers spoke of uh, the Sangha as being the living stream through which the Dhamma comes to us. Taking our part in being the living stream. So the Sangha, taking refuge in all those whom have awakened, taking refuge in the monks and the nuns who have dedicated their lives to keeping alive these teachings, this practice, and taking refuge in the community of practitioners that come together and the nobility of our intention in doing so. We will find that refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha is only a refuge to the extent that they are manifested. That it can't just be a lip service to which we pay. That, you know, in my own experience, when I first came to Buddhist teachings, um, you know, I couldn't even bow to a statue to a monk to a person without really cringing. You know, there was no sense of their being refuge. But when we let them become a live practice in our lives, we will find it a deepening practice that will help to give us support. We can see it in the external world where you know, we can have a sense of taking refuge in the historical Buddha, uh, taking refuge in the teachings, and taking refuge in the community. We can also really deeply relate to it in our inner world, where we take refuge in our own potential, where we take refuge in the lawfulness, the way things are, and that we are not separate from this. And we learn in our inner world to be our own spiritual friend. In taking this on as a practice, as a way of turning our minds, we may find a strengthening of the quality of devotion, where there's a growing sense of gratitude, appreciation, for the teachings and the practice. I'd like to share a teaching from a Tibetan monk. Uh, his name's Thai Situ Rinpoche. He is a very famous teacher in the Tibetan lineage. He lives in India. Um, he says, the foundation of devotion is confidence in your essence. If you don't have confidence in your essence, you cannot have true devotion. It becomes more like fear than devotion. 
Devotion is based on your potential. I have the potential to become a Buddha. And we can recognize that Prince Siddhartha was already, had already achieved this. And the sense that we want to become like him. And so our ultimate devotion becomes to the Buddha. And we go right down through the lineage. But it's really taking or this devotion in the confidence in our essence. This is the confidence in our Buddha nature and becoming devoted to this, really calling this forth in our lives. It helps us to bring a devotion to how we practice, that we can practice wholeheartedly with a full commitment. This quality of devotion helps us to bring a lightness and a joy into how we practice. Because we are having confidence, we are aligning with truth. We find that we have devotion to truth, to understanding, to living this life to its full potential and having confidence in that potential. Suzuki Roshi, a famous Zen master, once said, moment after moment, completely devote yourself to listening to your inner voice. Now, can we have devotion to this? Completely devoting ourselves to listening to our own inner voice. So finding in our own lives the meaning of refuge. Finding what it is we can turn our minds towards, which is reliable, trustworthy. The sixth Zen patriarch once said, let each of us take refuge in the three gems within our mind. Looking within, finding the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha within. I'd like to close tonight with a teaching from the Dhammapada. The Dhammapada is a very succinct expression of the Buddha's teachings. So this is from the Buddha. People threatened by fear go to many refuges, to mountains, forests, parks, trees, and shrines. None of these is a secure refuge. None is a supreme refuge. Not by going to such a refuge is one released from all suffering. But when someone going for refuge to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, sees with right insight the Four Noble Truths, suffering, the arising of suffering, the overcoming of suffering, and the Eightfold Path leading to the end of suffering, then this is the secure refuge. This is the supreme refuge. By going to such a refuge, 
one is released from all suffering. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.